0: Our scripture, as we follow along in the story of Abraham and Sarah, is chapter 18 of Genesis. We'll read verses 1 through 15. The Lord appeared to Abram near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then may wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go in on your way. Now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried and into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sayas of the finest flour and knead it and make some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf, gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before the men. While they ate, he stood near them under the tree. "'Where's your wife, Sarah?' they asked him. "'There in the tent.' Then one of them said, "'I will surely return to you about this time next year, "'and Sarah, your wife, will have a son.' Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind them, Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing, so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, "'After I am worn out and my old, my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure?' Then the Lord said to Abraham, "'Why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord?' I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, Oh, yes, you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. So it's a hot day, and old Abraham is sitting in the shade of his favorite place on earth, the Oaks of Mambri. The heat waves are rising off the yellow grass and the rocks that are scattered around as Abraham dozes off in the door of his tent. Something startles him. He blinks his eyes open. He sees three men standing just a little ways from the tent. They're catching some shade, perhaps, in the shade of the oak trees. And before you know it, Abraham hurries over to meet them, and with a courteous bow, he, goes, he, bow he, he bends to the ground. Who are they? The text is tantalizingly unclear. At the beginning of the chapter, it says, the Lord appeared to Abraham, and then it's just three men who appear to Abraham. And before you know it, it says again, the Lord spoke to Abraham. In this mysterious interaction, it seems that Abraham saw three ordinary human beings, but somehow he perceives that it's more than that, that he has met the Lord. In later Christian tradition, these three strangers at the Oaks of Mamre are seen as none other than a shadowing of the Holy Trinity. You can see here this splendid icon from the 16th century by Rublev. It's based on the story of the meeting of Abraham with those three strangers. I've had a copy of this in my office for years and years. I love it because it feels like you as the observer are being invited into this loving circle of friends. Well, Abraham acts like the perfect host. After all, this is Middle Eastern hospitality. There's nothing like it. The first few verses are full of activity. Abraham saw, he ran, he bowed, he hurried, he ran, he gave, he took, he stood. He and Sarah ran themselves ragged to get a great feast together for these three strangers. Here Abraham is in control of the situation. The strangers are passive guests, trying not to notice all the fuss that's being made over them. But then the initiative suddenly shifts. The three guests ask a question, and the poise of the host begins to slip away as things get very personal. Where's your wife, they ask. Abraham is in for some serious business here. Well, Sarah's in the tent behind them, and she thinks that they can't hear her or see her, and so one of the three says, I will return due season, and Sarah will have a son. Of course, Sarah's listening, and she doesn't miss anything that's going on in her household. And then it says, and Sarah laughed. Now, of course, we all remember, if you hear last week, that Abraham did the same thing when the Lord came to him and announced that Sarah was going to bear a son. So we can understand her reaction Thinking that they can't hear, she, she actually expresses her doubts in, when you read the Hebrew, rather pungent language that the translators don't quite grasp. Sure, a benai, a couple of old coots, we're supposed to get it on one more time. you got to be kidding. That's what she says. The Lord speaks again, toning down Sarah's language. Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a son when I am old? And then the Lord asked this simple, very deep question that we're going to think a lot about today. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Again, I question the translation. I don't think it's very good. Too hard means that with a little more effort it might happen. No, we're talking about impossibilities here, and that's what the Word conveys is anything impossible for the Lord? In the last chapter, the Lord seemed to overlook Abraham's doubtful laughter, but the visitor now takes note of it. All this laughter perhaps is getting out of hand, and so still he doesn't punish her, doesn't threaten her. He simply says, you just wait and see. Sarah will have a son. And in the end, we see an embarrassed Sarah stumbling out of her tent, denying everything. I didn't laugh. But the Lord says, oh, yes, you did laugh. Here's something to think about. Christians are often taught that that what God does depends in some way on our faith in God. If you don't have enough faith, then God won't or can't act. Well, the story of Abraham and Sarah seems to destroy that notion because we see very little faith at all from either of them. If God's work were dependent on the quality of our faith, God's work in this world will be pretty much stymied. As someone once commented on this story, the promises and the plans of God far outdistance the ability of human beings to, f- to believe in them. As we've seen over and over in Abraham's story, how it honestly portrays the scandal and the difficulty of faith. Faith is not some reasonable stance that fit the normal contours of life. Sometimes faith demands that we believe that a wrinkled old couple are going to have a baby. So in the face of Sarah's laughter, the Lord asks that big question, and the whole story of the Bible, in a way, revolves around that question. Is anything impossible for the Lord? Now, don't answer that question too quickly. Lots of us have a long history in the church, and we've heard all these stories before, and so for us, the question seems more rhetorical than real. We may eagerly wave our hands like a four-year-old in a Sunday school class. No, nothing is impossible for the Lord. But hold it. If we answer the question too quickly, we may also be missing something important. If we really do answer that question, nothing is impossible for God, then we have to have a whole new view of reality. Then anything can happen. The possibilities are staggering. Then the world is not a closed system, but it's a place where old women have babies and slaves get out of Pharaoh's grasp and and the dead rise out of the grave. The world is a place that's pregnant with possibilities. Or we may be tempted the other way. Yes, some things are impossible, even for God, if there is a God. And that's the prevalent answer of the Western world today. It quickly reduces the whole throbbing, mysterious universe to a closed system of cause and effect. God is no longer Almighty God, a benevolent God maybe, kind and concerned about the world, but ultimately God is powerless to make any concrete difference. Everything is predictable, stable, reliable, and hopeless. This was the world that Abraham and Sarah had come to live in, too. It's a world where you finally come to terms with, out, with about not having a baby when you're 90 years old. It's a world where the hard realities seem like impossible obstacles, even for God. Who can blame Sarah? Who can blame Abraham for a little laughter? In their doubts, Abraham and Sarah leave the question tantalizingly unanswered. They don't answer it. And so God just changes the subject, and things go on. But that question blazes like a comet through biblical history. The word translated as impossible pops up again and again and again in the Bible, and it's interesting to see when and how. Let me point to a few interesting places where you find that very same word, In Exodus 15, Miriam dances with triumph, strumming her tambourine at God's deliverance of the Hebrew slaves. She sings, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, doing, the word is, the impossible. As an angel visits Manoah, who was Samson's father, announcing Samson's birth from his barren wife, Manoah wants to make sure that this is coming from the highest levels of heaven. And so he says, uh, what did you say your name was? That's what he says to the angel. And the angel says, just call me impossible. Same word. I love that. The word occurs over and over and over in the Psalms, of course, Israel's hymn book. Oh, sing to the Lord. He has done marvelous things. Same word. Marvelous, impossible things. And then as we turn from the Hebrew of the Old Testament to the Greek of the New Testament, it gets even more interesting. When the angel visits Mary to announce her pregnancy, it also announces the pregnancy of Elizabeth, her cousin, who is very old, like Sarah was. And the angel says, Now your cousin Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, for nothing will be impossible with God. Jesus took up the same question in his own teaching. In Luke, I'm sorry, Matthew 17, after Jesus has rebuked the disciples for their inability to cast out demons, he says, truly I tell you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, for nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus says that when we have faith, when we re- rely on God, then things that the world defines as impossible will be possible, not only for God, but for us. Uh, oh, here's where we say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that really true? It seems like a blank check that we can draw on the, 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 the first bank of Jerusalem, Anyone who has followed the evangelist that you can see on TV or radio knows how to exploit this text. The promise that everything from financial security to good weather to happiness to healing is available to anyone who has enough faith. Kenneth Hagin, who is the most famous exponent of this theology, wrote a book entitled, and I'm not kidding, How to Write Your Own Ticket with God. According to this wonderful theology, we now live by faith in a kind of world where God, like some trained seal, responds to our every request, especially if it's sent to the TV evangelist with a check attached. No. God is the one who does impossibilities, and as Abraham and Sarah's doubtful laughter make clear, he does not need our faith to do it. We also have to remember that the impossibility granted to Abraham and Sarah was not any old impossibility. It was the impossibility, it was the, the impossibility that fulfills the plan and purpose of God. God is fulfilling a plan by which He will bring salvation to the whole world. and this is the first step in that plan, and nothing will stand in God's way. It's impossible. But to more fully understand yet what this is all about, let's now take another look at Jesus. Now he is prostrate on the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying. He's begging to be delivered from that hour of pain and torment that he has been that has that has been staring him in the face all his life long. He remembers his own words of encouragement to his disciples, and so he prays, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible, or nothing is impossible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And we know what happened. Perhaps then. One answer to the question of the divine visitors to Abraham is, yes, there is at least one thing that is impossible for the Lord, and that is to go back on His will and purpose to save humanity through the suffering and death of His only Son. Eternal life without a cross, salvation without sacrifice, these are impossible with God. These are not God's way. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. Jesus did not seem to know this wonderful theology that we can write our own ticket with God, because His was a one-way ticket to the cross. And that night in Gethsemane, agonizing in fear on the ground, He learned the secret of obedience to God's will And the way that we need to follow God's purpose. Like Abraham and Sarah, we still struggle with that question. Is anything impossible with God? We've all faced it. When you lose a loved one to a stalking disease that you've been praying for, when a pregnancy goes wrong, when life just seems to beat the living tar out of you, The age-old question still reverberates in our minds, is anything impossible for God? Is it impossible for God to banish all disease, to bring all healthy babies to delivery, to untwist all the painful struggles, and to smooth our path? Of course not. The question is not one of possibilities or impossibilities. The question is how God operates in this world of ours. God is the God for whom all things are possible, but God also respects human beings. He respects human agency. If God were to make all bullets into balloons, if God always removes the consequences of our human actions, then we live in a world where we are mere puppets in a magical theater. That's not our world. In the world God made, we are not puppets. We have real agency. We have real responsibility. We answer to someone. And that means we do not live. That means that we live sometimes with the consequences of the brokenness of the world. Still, God loves the world that He has made, and God has come into our world as a human being, fully like us. He has revealed God's grace, He's revealed God's loving purpose but He has not violated and will not violate our human agency. He does not magically banish all sin and tragedy. You know what He does? He bears it. He takes it into His own body and heart. The world is wrenched with pain and failure and warring violence and sickness and injustice and death. And we still live with the consequences of our own bent toward sin. But even in our doubts and fears like Jesus, we are called to finally place our lives confidently in the hands of our loving Father who has covenanted to redeem this world and to bring it to himself. That Trinitarian picture of the welcoming arms of God. As Jesus says, In the world you will have trouble. Be sure of it. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. As Sarah and Abraham and Jesus have found, the answer to the question, is anything impossible for God, may follow a slow, painful time of waiting, and it will demand faithful patience. It may include long, dark nights of seeming barrenness. It will not even become fully clear until that great getting up morning when our Lord returns. But the whole biblical story tells it that the ultimate answer to that question posed to Abraham and Sarah is finally no. Nothing is impossible for God. In due time, in due time, the child of laughter, Isaac, will be born after a long wait of barrenness. In due time, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. In due time, Easter morning will dawn after the dark night of the cross. In due time, the new Jerusalem will descend. And death will be no more, and every tear will be wiped away, and mourning and crying and pain will be no more. That's why today, even in the midst of the pain and violence and darkness of this world, We do not join in Sarah's hopeless laughter. We put our faith in the God for whom nothing is impossible. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together. Lord, how we struggle, how we struggle. With the realities of this world, in which all of us have experienced pain and sorrow and loss and difficulty, and in which, when we look out at the world, it seems to be so, so broken. And we wonder is anything impossible for God? Is it possible for you yet to redeem this world and to draw it to yourself? Lord, Today, we may sometimes chuckle or laugh or not quite believe it all, but Lord, give us the faith to finally know that it's in Your hands that You love us and that You will bring about the purposes of Your great covenant and redeem this world and call it to Yourself. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.